now we all now we come to the part that we're all here for besides the celebration and the dinner we're here for the lead and uh the gentleman that has been asked to speak tonight which is wilbur d i have not ever had the privilege to meet him but i am eager to hear his story and with that i'll give you wilbur d When the saints come marching in, oh, when the saints come marching in, I want to be in that number when the saints come marching in. And you marched in tonight. You're here. Saints I can't prove. Saints I can prove. I'm delighted to be with you. I am Will Badia, a recovering alcoholic. I have been around a few years, and the reason I'm here tonight is to show you the lady that kept me straight. For 63 years, I've been married to this lady. She's an Al-Anon. It hasn't been easy living with Wilbur D., I'll tell you that. But I'm delighted to come over here tonight and talk with you. The man that's supposed to be up here is sitting right there. He is a saint. There's no question. Ruby, you back it up, won't you? Rosie, you back it up that he's a saint. He's played some tricks on me. He and another friend of ours at Oak Street called me one day and said, Wilbur, there's a lady wants to go to a meeting. She's an old lady, and she'd like for you to take her. So I went over prepared. I had a pickup truck. I wasn't driving the wagon yet. The sheriff hadn't given me permission to get my license back. But I was doing pretty well, so I went over to pick this lady up. I rang the doorbell. She was about 21 years old. She was well stacked. <laughs> she had on leather boots that came up to her hips. And she leaned over and smacked me as I came in the door, kissed me on the lips. So I said to her, would you mind riding by my house in my truck so I can show you to my wife? I drove her home by the house, and my wife's eyes stuck out like Easter eggs. <laughs> this same girl, I came into AA meeting one Saturday night, and I was, as I opened the door and let my wife through the door, this beautiful woman come flying down the hall, unzipped my pants, and hugged me. <laughs> There's a man that did it. God in his gracious mercy forgives you, Bill. <laughs> no, I look out at this crowd tonight, 
and I am amazed because the name Drogi, for instance, comes into my mind. Drogi helped us from northern Kentucky over in the Cincinnati area more than anybody. We, but we rented a house on Harrison Avenue for people who were coming out of the prison system at that time. It was called the Drogi Halfway House. It was at the corner of Fairmount and Harrison Avenue. We've been governed by your spirit of adversary movement into this program. You came in just like we expected you to. You made the best bourbon in the world. You're making the best AA members. And there's nothing but praise in my heart for you. The idea of coming in front of a group like you and trying to sell this program, which I had a hell of a time getting. I, it, I did a lot of research before I finally accepted step one. <laughs> I did everything I could to dissuade myself to follow this program. I had a peculiar childhood. Had there been a shrink in my hometown for treating juveniles, my mother would have engaged him. Uh, I had no aptitude toward school. I saw bears in trees. I had great imagination. And my mother was really worried about me. Well, that didn't just leave suddenly. I carried that on with me, and I've been in trouble in more places than you can tell. I've dabbled into every kind of trade. I was, a, I was in St. Louis after a harvest wheat thrashing system during one summer. I ended up there and broke, and I had ridden the rails for the first time in my life. I had gotten on a coal car and come into St. Louis, and they told me, you better get off here because the, the uh, police, railroad police will beat the hell out of you. No. So I hopped off and walked into the city of St. Louis, out of the railroad yard, and I hadn't eaten in a couple of days, and I was hungry. And I passed by a basement apartment, and there was a gal in there cooking grits and bacon. And I looked in there and saliva ran right out of my mouth. <laughs> she said, come on here, boy, you look like you hungry. And I did, and I ate there. So God in his grin for the mercy, let that lady serve me bacon and, and grits that morning. And I'm thankful for that. I was told to go to the YMCA where, where indigent people went when they didn't have enough money to rent a room. So I went down there, and the man said to me, we've got a job at the city morgue. I thought, what in the world will your man do at the city morgue at night? And he said, all we want you to do is to identify dead people to people who claim to be their relatives. That was pulling the refrigerator drawer out and letting them look at old Joe see if he had any, any tattoos on him, or he had been split open with a rock or something, he had a scar. That was the way he identified him. Well, I didn't know that there was a scheme in this thing 
and I opened drawers for about three weeks, and a man came to me one day and he said, I'm in the undertaking business. He said, every time you get a drifter or a drowner out of the river, I want you to call my undertaking establishment. <clears throat> I said, well, what's in it for me? <laughs> he said, I'm going to see that you get a grandfather clause license. Now, I had never been around cadavers before, but he was so nice to me, I'd, what I'd do, I'd raise the window curtain, he'd hit light behind him, and he would notice that I raised it, that meant that we'd gotten a new floater. <laughs> he'd come over and uh, bring a box, take it out, bear it in, uh, with the coroner's permission, bear it in what we call the land for people who are poor and can't afford a grave. And uh, Potter's Field, it was called. Well, anyway, I got a certificate of of appreciation in the form of a grandfather clause license to be an embalmer. <laughs> I went over I went over to a little place called a embalming college, St. Louis Embalming College, what it's called. <laughs> and I took a few courses and well, they showed me how to lift the femoral and lift an artery to drain the body out with an old rubber pump and push the, pull the blood out and push the bumping fluid in. And, a great, a great thing for a young man. I finally made it back home and my father said, what, what did you learn? I said, I learned how to embalm. He said, well, Maybe Mr. Yop, the Yop Funeral Home, will give you a job. He was trying to get me some work. So I went to work for Yop, and I did get a license. And that thing was to plague me all my life. I was an unusual student. I couldn't pass anything. Uh, I was in high school, and uh, the principal went to my father one day, and he said, Mr. Dozier, that boy, he was not going to make it. He said, uh, if you want to get him a diploma, you're going to have to send him to prep school somewhere and just buy him one. <laughs> what he did, I ended up at Blackstone Military Academy in Nottoway County, Virginia, and I got a diploma, high school diploma. I didn't deserve it, but I got it because Papa had paid $1,540 in addition to my regular tuition for that school. <laughs> Got out. My mother looked in my angel-studded eyes <laughs> and said, this son of mine is going to make a wonderful Methodist preacher. <laughs> Now, this was in 1927 when I got out of that military academy. And I thought, well, Mama's just playing around. She won't remember that when we get home. I got home, and by God, she had had me matriculated at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, for September term. Well, boy, did they get a surprise. <laughs> <coughs>
I arrived on the scene there in Durham, and uh, when the dean of freshmen said to me, "What is your, what is your, what do you want to do?" I said, "Well, I don't know. My mother said I'm supposed to be a preacher." So it's an old divinity school, and he put me right in divinity school with a bunch of the biggest old harpies I've ever seen. <laughs> Most of them were old, much older than I was. So I put up with it for about three weeks. Finally got a little beanie that said Duke on the front of it, and I was in. Uh, but. My, when I matriculated, and I thought matriculation was something more than what, I, what I'd heard. It, that sounded like urinating to me, you know. I thought that's what you did when you matriculated, but that wasn't. They sent me over to, this dean, the, to the dean of the school of religion, and Frank Martin was one of the best men I ever met, but he was sure messed up when he got me. And I lasted exactly two terms, two little three, two semesters. And they called my mother up, called my father up, and said, "This boy's not gonna make it." <laughs> I went out of that place because I brought a five-gallon char keg of corn whiskey from Madame Mesquite Lake, North Carolina, the best whiskey we made in the state. Wouldn't touch your bourbon, but it was good whiskey. Very palatable. I brought it up there, and you know them Methodist minister students drank it all. I sold it for a quarter per Coca-Cola bottle full. And the next thing I know, I was told by the dean to report to his office at 9.30 the next morning. I was no longer a divinity student. <laughs> I was in a dilemma. But God in his infinite wisdom takes care of alcoholics, and I was a young alcoholic at that time. I left there. My father was in the plumbing business, and there was a plumbing convention in Durham. And I knew Pop, and he'll be drunk too, so I'll go find him. I went over there, my father was shooting crap in the, in the, the Duke Hotel, had two suitcases on the bed to bump them. You had to bump them so they were, and they were shooting crap, and there was a pile of money in the bed, or laying on the bed. And I said, Pop, <clears throat> I've been kicked out of Duke. He says, oh my God, your mother will never forgive me. And they got that crying jag on us. This poor little boy just got kicked out of school. Here's a bunch of damn plumbers. <laughs> High as a Georgia pine and handed me that money and told, told me to go to Savannah, Georgia. And they, I'd be taken care of. I went to Savannah, Georgia. I bought another fifth of Georgia corn whiskey. It didn't, wasn't like North Carolina corn whiskey. And I ended up on a train, came to on a train, chugging, 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 and man sitting next to me had powder blue trousers with a red stripe down them. And he had a khaki, chambray khaki shirt on and a little tie, and sitting on the seat was a hat, a garrison cap with a 
eagle and globe on it. And I said to him, what has happened to me? <laughs> and he said, you've joined the Marine Corps. And there began the most humiliating, humiliating part of my whole life. <laughs> Valentine's Day in November, my girlfriend in Wilmington gave me a pair of boxer shorts, black with red hearts on them. And of all times to be wearing such an outlandish pair of drawers, When I reached Paris Island, that damn D.I., that drill instructor of mine, said, take your clothes off. We were in a World War I barracks, one of those nice little huts, you remember? Not, not the new huts that came out in World War II. This was one that was left over World War I. I took them off, and he said, good God, look at that. says, take those damn drawers off. <laughs> I took them off, and that man took my beautiful black drawers with the hearts on it and threw it in a pot-bellied stove and burned them up. <laughs> well, the Marine Corps had a little thing that said, the Marine Corps was looking for a few good men, but brother... They had gotten the burst of the bargain on this deal. I had to stick it out because I, I made one call. I remembered the police station. You were allowed to make one call. I said, can I call up? and said, yes. I called my father and said, he was only, he only 125 miles away from Wilmington to Paris Island. And I said, Pop, I'm in deep trouble. You remember what happened to me up in Durham? Said, yeah. Well, I worse than that happened to me in Savannah. <laughs> said, where are you? I said, Paris Island. And I said, uh, give me one phone call. And I said, I'll call you. He said, I'll be right there, boy. Don't let them hurt you. <laughs> I said, there ain't much I can do about that, but come as quick as you can. So he drove from Wilmington to Paris Island at this Paris Island at that time was isolated. You could not reach it by any, called bridge or anything. In order to get to Paris Island, you had to get on a barge and a, and a tugboat pushed you over to the island. My father got there and I thought it would be like the return of the prodigal son where the father <laughs> greeted him, put his arms around him and took off his coat and gave it to him, put a ring on his finger, forgave him of all his sins. I thought, this is going to be the moment that that's going to happen to me. Well, if I was at one end of the building, and my father came in that door in the hostess house, and my D.I. was with me, and I was in uniform the day, and we met. And my father, I thought he was going to embrace me. He embraced my damn D.I. <laughs> and he said, how long is this boy in for? said, four years. He said, good. <laughs> I, I know where he is from now on. And I ended up in the Marine Corps. Now, I told you about that, getting that bomber's license. 
Well, on my service record, I put down in bomber. <laughs> Civilian, that was, I had no other apparition then. I didn't have a, any uh, game that I wanted to play, but I did put that down. And you know, I went to, through Paris Island, ended up in Quantico, Virginia, joined, joined the band, because somebody told me that was the easiest way out. All you had to carry was your <laughs> instrument. Them other damn Marines is crawling around on the ground with rolls of tape on, rolls of wire on the back, scrounging on the barbed wire, and I'm up there tooting the horn. <laughs> so I got into that area of it. <clears throat> Marine Corps soon found out about it, but anyway, I found a political system that nobody is equal to. It's the power of the military. They get even with one another. If a sergeant major has a friend who is a, in another unit and you're an asshole, he will transfer you to that man to get even with it. I went to Paris, from Paris Island down to the 1st Brigade, 2nd Regiment, Port-au-Prince, Haiti, to an unsuspecting band director <laughs> who met me at the Quai d'Orsay as my ship, the old USS Kittery, came in and hollered out, Do you have a, name, a horn player for me? Hollered back, yes. Put him off. So they put me off before they got the damn boat tied up. <laughs> put me in a Laleen. That's a horse-drawn taxi. Great in Haiti. And we went all rode up to the Caserne d'Organab, my future home for three years. And he said, uh, I know this is bad. I says, we are having a band practice this morning. This, I'm just getting out of the damn cab. I got an old beat-up French horn in a case. Says, we're going in and practice. I said, well, I haven't gotten any lip. I haven't practiced. I haven't tried, had any lessons in the two or three weeks. Says, that's all right. You come on in and let's start. So I went in and looked. And on the bandstand where I was supposed to be, what, first horn. I looked at that, there's William Tell Overture, and to those of you who are not musicians, William, William Tell Overture has a grand pause after about four or five spaces, and the horn solo comes in. <laughs> la da 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 da, la da 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 da, and I made noises on that horn <coughs> that the worst gas from diarrhea person ever made. And the man, the man took his baton and broke it in two. And I knew I was in trouble. Somebody in, in the headquarters company reviewed my, my record and it says, Undertaker, Embalmer. <laughs> and so help me God, at Battalion Parade the next morning, 
An ambulance came up and stopped, and Major Fagan, my superior officer, said, Doja, take four steps forward. <laughs> I stepped out and went four steps forward. He said, get in that ambulance. <laughs> that ambulance, my friends, was a World War I relic. It had hard tires on it, you know, solid tires. It had the gear shift on the outside. Now I'm old. I'm 88, so that that machine was at least, when I got in it, was at least 20 years old because the World War I had been over that long. This was 1929. Drove me up there, told me to go see the brigade surgeon. I went to see him. He said, you are my embalmer. I said, well, you have, what do you embalm here? Well, who do you think? What do you think we embalm? Embalm people. <laughs> so anyway, I, I was, my new quarters was in this embalming shack. It had a concrete table about the size of one of those. It had, it was tilted just a little bit so that the cadaver wouldn't slip off, but you could bleed him and the other thing would run on the deck, you know. <laughs> I live I lived in that little shanty. But you know folks what happened? Oh, great discovery. Dr. Peely told me, he says, you go pick up your five hundred cc's of alcohol. I said, What was that again? <laughs> He said, uh, you're entitled to an issue every week, 500 cc's, pretty good amount. I said, what is it for? He said, wash instruments. I thought, wash instruments? Hell, I got soap and water for that. I hate to tell you about my first cadaver. He was a master sergeant. And he had blown his brains out with a 45 automatic through his mouth. Well, that just took the whole back end of his head off and didn't help his front part either. him up I finally got him up on the table with the help of some other Marines and uh, course stripped him naked it wasn't bad to look at but he was a big man anyway I started embalming that man and I got it through with it and I called Dr. Stringer my superior officer and I said doc I got him ready he said had the required amount of, of, of Mormon fluid in him. He said, well, leave him on the table naked. We'll turn him over every two or three days to test him for soft spots, which was, see if he was, was deteriorating. Well, I thought, that's all right. So three days passed, four days, I still had this old man laying up on the table. A knock came on the door. It was a woman with two little children. She said, have you got Sergeant Brady in here? 
I said, I got a man up there on the table. I think that's his name, what his dog tag says. And what can I look at him? And I said, yes, are you, are you kidding to him? He said, yes, he's my husband. And I thought, well, this will be a sad moment. I'll stand to one side and let her have counsel. She looked, she looked at that cadaver, and she said to the little girl, that's your daddy. <laughs> Then she said, and I hope the SOB never comes back. <laughs> well, I, a new experience. <laughs> and Dr. Stringer calls me right after that surprise and says, the kiddery, we haven't got a shipping case that'll fit this man. He was six foot seven. And he said, uh, just keep him for 30 days, the kiddery will be here. Uh, I lived with him for 30 days, but I kept, I kept noticing other Marines coming up there and said, what happened to the old Sergeant Major? I got him in there. said, can we see him? I said, have he got 50 cents? <laughs> that was the first Marine Corps sideshow. And that, the only the trouble was too many got interested in this old man and the doctor wanted to know what the hell was going on. <laughs> Found out one day that the piss ants had gotten in the, the place <laughs> and were craw crawling all over my table and on the old cadaver. <laughs> so I thought, what am I going to do? <laughs> the fellow that was working with me and helping me we said, well, what we'll do, we'll take a dishpan, fill it full of formaldehyde, and stand him in the corner. <laughs> so we took him off the table, stood him in the corner, and I was, for 31 days, I was in company with that bugger, so we got a shipping truck. I'd turn him over every day and feel for soft spots, and if I found one, I'd inject 37% formaldehyde with a syringe. And that he kept, he was a beautiful white-haired man, just about your haircut. <laughs> your haircut. <laughs> and I, I kept noticing he had a very fair complexion, but it kept getting darker and darker till finally it looked like cordovan leather, which is a deep brown, russet brown. And I thought, well, something's happened to him. I don't know what it is, but I was tanning him. I would, I had put. <laughs> got him in the shipping case and shipped him back to Norfolk, Virginia. Now, trying to dress a dead man that's been dead 30 days and stiff as a poker. Trying to cut the coat so you can get around him. And at that time, it was a. A military collar was very hard to get on, dead man. <laughs> Got him in there, shipped him to Norfolk, and I thought, well, that's the last of him. We got a radiogram. That was back in the days before all this email stuff. <laughs> we got a radiogram from Bethesda Hospital, U.S. Naval Hospital, Bethesda, Maryland. Said, all it said was, 
what in the hell happened? <laughs> well, I didn't get a commendation for that job, I'll tell you. My wife hates me when I tell this story because she thinks it's terrible. And it was terrible, and but she is an unsuspecting Southern Baptist. She believed anything. <laughs> I found that out when I courted her. I got out of the Marine Corps honorably, but not before I got a court martial <laughs> for disturbing the divine service, a church service. Another unknown man to me died and requested permission to be buried in the Quantico Cemetery. And I had a date that night with a telephone operator in Washington, D.C., and my Liberty train was ready to go, and I was ready to hop too. Just as I started out the barracks, Lordiana, the sergeant major, the bandmaster, came up and said, You can't go. The band's got to stay here. We got to bury this man tomorrow morning. I said, God, I got a date in Washington. I'm ready hot to trot. Let's, what do you, he said, what do you all, so anyway, I said, all right. And I went out, right out the gate, which you could do, when the war was over. We could go out the gate. The, uh, prohibition was on, so there was no whiskey to sell, but the women, of the world saved my day. <laughs> there was a thing called menstrual period. And there was a compound called Lydia E. Pinkham's compound. And it was made out of 63 cent vermouth <laughs> and doctored with quinine to make it bitter so that you wouldn't want to drink it all the time. But it. <laughs> It would blow your cork. It blew my cork. And uh, we fell out, the band fell out for parade. Well, back in those days, you played uh, the slow march to bury people. Da, 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 la, da, 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 da. And anyway, we got Chopin's funeral march. We got over to the band, I mean, over to the playground. Staff car drove up with General Smedley D. Butler in it. <laughs> Smedley D. Butler got out, and just as he got out, my, my boot tuba player was standing right behind me, <laughs> Big Andy, and he said, uh, have you got the bowl of that tonic? I said, yeah, I got it. One more, and we took a drink right there. I had in my music pouch. <laughs> we took a drink, and Lord Annan saw something going on, and he made the mistake of running back there. And as he ran back, Big Andy bent down with that tuba and caught his hat and head and drove it right up into the bell. <laughs> I dropped my horn, stepped on it. The trombone player howled. He stuck his stuck his slide completely off his trombone, <laughs> and he, when taking it off, he hit the sword. He hit the bandmaster right in the mouth. 
And you know what we decided to do? They began to send me, let's run. <laughs> there ain't nothing out there but 40 acres of pavement. <laughs> so we ran and two Marine Shore Patrol on a bicycle captured us. I was <laughs> the commanding general, the Catholic priest is just coming out with that bush he uses to sprinkle that holy water <laughs> and sprinkling the holy water. And we finally got that shoot over with, but I got a some record out of that. And I immediately thought ways to get the hell out of this Marine Corps. And I made it. But I got out, I got an honorable discharge in spite of all that. And I'm so glad I brought home all my problems though. I was a full-fledged alcoholic. <clears throat> this gal was teaching school in my hometown. And I figured, well, she looked pretty good. In fact, I got, the way I got to meet her was a friend of mine had uh, some problems with his, uh, uh, what was it? <laughs> anyway. He had a problem, said, I'm supposed to have a date tonight. Would you go tell this lady that I'm going to be unable to keep it? I said, I will. And I went, and she trotted down the steps. I liked what I saw. <laughs> and I, we politely forgot about this poor man who was suffering from whatever it was that was keeping him from his date. <laughs> and you know... There began the biggest snow job in the world. I snowed, <laughs> I snowed her in, and she believed me, line, hook, and sinker. And uh, we loved to dance. I was enjoyed dancing. We had a Wilmington had a great big pavilion built out over the ocean at Wrightsville Beach, and streetcars went down, took people down there every night, and it was beautiful. Big bands, big bands, Gillespie. And those people who had uh, played all over the United States would come down there. 1,500 couples could dance on that floor at one time. So I took her down there, and I took five gallons of corn whiskey with me, <laughs> put it in the powerhouse. I'd come back and forth. And she discovered then that I was an alcoholic, and we'd already been engaged to marry. I hadn't met her mother, who was a commanding general. <laughs> but we got married, and uh, she told me that she knew someday that I'd sober up. But I take her down there, but I always rode back with the sheriff. <laughs> Some unknown reason. Other people in our group would take her home, and my mother told me one day, said, something wrong with that, with you and that girl. I said, yes, there is. But here we are, folks. She discovered I'm an alcoholic. She thought she could cure it by praying and crying. <laughs> There's just no way that can happen. So she cried and prayed, and I kept on drinking. Babies began to come. She was a school teacher, so always got her job first. And we went on, look, I tell you, went on our honeymoon, brought her home, 
drove up to my house. The sheriff was right behind me, repossessed my automobile <laughs> before I could get my baggage out of the trunk. Well, anyway, it was a rough life. But Alcoholics Anonymous kind of grabbed over what was left of this meatball. And uh, I made the program not the easy way. I had been in the service. I had been through the World War II. And uh, I thought the war was over and I was forever going to be up in good old Ohio, not having any problems. At 43 years old, the damn war broke out in Korea, and of all the people that they needed was me. <laughs> Recalled me to active duty. She had received a certified letter in the mail, forgot about it promptly, put it in the dresser drawer. Eight, 31 days later, two FBI agents are knocking on my door. Are you Will Bedoja? I said, yes. said, you are AWOL. I said, hell, I can't be AWOL. I don't even, don't even belong to Salvation Army. <laughs> I went. I went to another, another trip to the side. Renewed my, my vows by buying four-fifths of corn whiskey. Not corn whiskey this time. Irish uh, meal whiskey. And that was one of my undoings. I got into the program in Worthington, Ohio, by puking all over my sponsor's new suit. <laughs> I went with him, though, because he worried me to death. And I went to every meeting with him, every meeting, and finally got through my head that this was wrong. So I came to Ohio looking for the way out, and I was discovered to be a 100% alcoholic. I was happy, but everybody around me was unhappy. And that, that made me think. So I want to end this discussion of laughing and jollying and tell you just what this program means to me. This program has taken this, I'm now 88, be 88 years old next month, has saved me from total disintegration. That and the computer. I bought a computer. And uh, when I bought it, man said, how old are you? I said, I'm 85, 83 then. He said, you too damn old to buy a computer. <laughs> I said, well, you, you got a boss? I went to see that boss of his, and I said, you got an oddball salesman up there. I said, I want to pay cash for this computer. The only one thing I want you to do, leave it here till I learn how to turn it on. And they left it on, and I have had more fun with that than anything in the world. I've got email letters from all over the United States. A lot of them, I'm online with several groups of the people who are in Alcoholics Anonymous, San Diego, uh, San Francisco and all around. It's just been the greatest thing the world happened to me. But she was the person who told me one day, I'm not going to live with you anymore. I'm tired of going down the drain for you. 
I'm taking my children going home. And that's when I thought, well, I need help. Went to AA, took the cotton out of, took the cotton out of my damn ears and put it in my mouth, quit talking for a while. That's hard to believe, I know. But anyway, this program has been a godsend to me. And uh, I've now been in it several years, 32 without a drink, 32 years without a drink. Uh, we have about, <laughs> yesterday coming up to this place to reconnoiter, because they didn't know how to get here. I had just received my new license plates, the dry dock plates, and they're special. They were $111 plates, so <laughs> I, I, I put them together, laid them on the back of my trunk, drove off to come into Covington. <laughs> now I'll show you how God looks at the alcoholics. Drove over here and I heard this little horn behind me. Toot, 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 toot. And the fellow was waving his hands and I thought, well, what in the hell's the matter with him? <laughs> so he, I pulled over the side and he said, you lost some license plates that were, fell out in the street. I said, I Oh my God, they're my new plates. They got my new thing and my new tag on it, a little stamp, so I pulled into the nearest station over here in Covington, uh, in Bellevue it was, and had them put my plates on. God was in that. That just didn't happen. I'm sure that he figured there that fool again. <laughs> so the thing that the thing that we know about in the heaven is a there exudes between us the feeling of love. I'm talking about real love. Uh, you people in Northern Kentucky in particular have been my boon, and I'm acquainted with your, your uh, the one over by Mother God Church that you talked about, and I drank in there. The cockroaches would move your drink for you. <laughs> Wasn't they, huh? If I recall, I had a 25-watt bulb held directly behind where the bartender was, and that's about all the light there was in there. But you were great people, and I was pleased to be with you. Uh, when I had gotten sober for the first time, a man came to me and said, the company that I worked for made stills, made copper stills for distilling whiskey. And we had a model called the May West. You know, it was big around and up and bulgy. And uh, took one, he said, they're looking for a person who's in AA that hadn't been drinking. Want to send you to Frankfurt to Granddad, old Granddad Bourbon. I thought, no, I don't want to go up there because if I remember correctly, all of the, all of the, uh, mush, mash that comes out is treated, dried so for cow feeding feeding cows and man it is the most delicious smelling place to work you've ever been <laughs> every every two, every bud in my tongue would just swell with joy when I got over it but I didn't drink I didn't drink because there were other people on that job who were in Alcoholics Anonymous with me and who kept me from drinking. 
It's a program of, that you can't enjoy till you give it away. And you watch the miracles that develop over what you are doing. It's God-given, although some of us might prefer to call the oak tree God or something else. Still out there, there's a power greater than ourselves. And we all know that, and I know that. And I thank God for the fact that Alcoholics Anonymous saw enough in me to claim me as a member and let me establish myself as a member. And it's, as the baton is passed on to you, young people, from us old people, my wife won't like that word. She does. Elderly, she'll take, but not old. But I do want to thank you for inviting me over here tonight. Nancy, I'm so glad we met. met. You know what I did? I forgot my tickets. <laughs> and I had to go to Nancy and say, I'll, I'll preach and pray, but I can't eat because I've lost, left the tickets off. She said, go on and eat. So we ate. We've had a wonderful time. Thank you so much for listening. And I want to tell you, my friend, and he, he's my friend. We studied together. We were docents for the Cincinnati uh, Museum, uh, historical society together. We took a course. And uh, you're, you're wonderful. And I've been your friend, and you've been mine. And I'm so glad to see all of you again. You can't get rid of you. <laughs> and where's Grody? Grody? Hey! Grody, there he is back here. Your family has meant more to me than any family in the in meal. Your mother was a saint. And I, we're all saints now because I marched in here tonight as saints. I? <laughs> I want to thank you for listening to me, and I hope to God I'm old enough to come back next year. <laughs>